Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is the author Rob Gentile, who had two near-death experiences and was even dead for 20 minutes which we are going to learn about today. Rob, thank you for being my guest on the podcast and welcome. Thank you so much, Jeff. Happy to be here. All right, Rob, if you don't mind, let's start with the first one that happened after your massive heart attack. Sure. I had uh, on January 26, 2016, after some minor surgery on my neck to remove some bone spurs, um, I had a massive heart attack about 11 p.m in my bed. What had happened was, is that looking back, my doctor said that I probably from that minor surgery, probably threw a blood clot and it went right into my widow maker. So at about 11 PM out of nowhere, I was lying in bed. I don't remember anything about it, thrashing around, screaming in pain. My wife is confused, of course, gets up. We have a special needs child who has a seizure disorder. She runs down the hall. She thought it was my daughter, Maria, having problems, runs back into the bedroom and sees that it's me, calls 911. She has a neighbor come over to watch my daughter. They rush me to the hospital. Thank goodness the hospital here is only about three miles away from my house. So they get me into the ER and they give me some medicine. They, matter of fact, the ambulance driver knew I was having a heart attack. He called it in. As soon as I arrived, they gave me some blood thinners, whatever it is that they give you to kind of stabilize you. So they, my wife said they put me in a room with her and a nurse. And the nurse said, well, the cardiologist is not in the hospital. We're going to call him now, but he seems stable. So it's going to be all right. As soon as she said that, I was laying on the gurney. And all of a sudden, as if someone grabbed me by my my lapels, my shirt, I sprung forward on the gurney from my waist up. I just sprung up like this. My eyes popped wide open and I screamed out the name Frosty. I screamed out Frosty. I collapsed backward onto the gurney, flatlined, code blue rang out through the hospital and in rushed a team of doctors that began to work on me. Now, before these doctors uh, ushered my, my wife out of the room, the, the main woman, Dr. Patel, a little Indian woman who I'm very good friends with now, uh, my wife said to her, you have to save him. We have a special needs child. She can't make it without him, and I can't do this alone. So they, they take my wife out of the room. She's in the hall. She drops to her knees, begins praying out loud to God to save me, and Dr. Patel begins to try to resuscitate me. So she did everything that she could. They did the paddle shocks, uh, vigorous, my medical records say vigorous sternal rubs. They injected me four times in the heart with epinephrine. Nothing was working. I was dead lying on the table for 20 minutes. Finally, there was something that compelled Dr. Patel. She was going to call it, 
after 20 minutes that something compelled her not to give up on me. So she continued to work on me. She continued to pump my chest. She continued to inject me until a slight pulse was obtained. And the cardiologist arrived. He did an emergency catheterization through my thigh and found the blockage in my Widowmaker, inserted two stints, but it was too late. Uh, I went into cardiogenic shock. Another doctor came in, Dr. Carson, intubated me. I was on the vent, and I slipped into a four-day coma. So that's how it all began. Now, to back up a little bit and give you some perspective, Frosty is the nickname for my brother-in-law. And unfortunately, seven weeks prior to that night that I died, Frosty had passed by suicide. And he was living in the upstairs bedroom of his parents. Frosty, I'm, I was 56 the night that I died. And Frosty is about my age. But he was going through a divorce. He was living in the upstairs bedroom with his parents. It was around Christmas. You know, the bills were piling up. He's trying to figure out how to pay for his daughter's college. He had one daughter. So all these things were, were taking place. Frosty did have uh, a, a drug addiction, but he had been clean for a while. He went out that night to blow off some steam and came back and unfortunately took his own life. So his mother called me. They live about 20 miles from here. His mother called me in the middle of the night, asked me to come down to the house and go up into his room to search for a journal or a note or something that would give them a clue as to why Frosty did this. So Jeff, seven times I went up into his room. And on the seventh time, I did find a journal that I was able to give to the family. So the first day that I came out of coma, and, and during this four-day period, by the way, um, you know, neurologists were coming in and out of the room, checking to see if I were brain dead. How they do that, I don't know. And my oldest brother drove down from Pittsburgh. I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And having been raised Catholic, he called a local parish priest. The local parish priest arrived, anointed me with oil, gave me my last rites. And in the Catholic faith, we call that extreme unction. Uh, a Catholic only gets that one time in their life, and it prepares their soul to, to, you know, to meet God. So I had the last rites. On the fourth day, my doctor came to my wife and said, look, we, we can't wait any longer. We're going to pull out the tubes. And if he breathes on his own, we don't know if he's going to be a vegetable. I'm sure a lot of damage has been done. We'll see what we get. So obviously, I, I started choking. I took out the tubes. And what's curious about this, so, so I'm in the recovery room. Uh, my wife is the first one that I saw. And I remember her coming into the room. And she says to me, um, why did you scream out the name Frosty? right before he flatlined. And I said, oh my God, Melanie, Frosty came to me. He came to me. And she said, now tell me exactly what Frosty told you. And Frosty said to me, I've made a big mess out of things and you have to go back and clean things up. But tell my parents I'm in a good place. And my wife said, oh, my God, that's my brother. Number one, he was always making a big mess out of things. Um, he never asked for anybody's help. We're always after him to clean things up. 
But what struck me there is that having been raised Catholic, at least when I went through uh, Catholic school, you know, it was a mortal sin. We were taught that it was a mortal sin. If you took your own life, you know, you went straight to hell. And that was the first real paradigm shift in my belief system that Frosty tells me he's in a good place. I'm sure hell isn't a good place. So it really, it opened up my mind and it really had me thinking in that moment. I mean, there I was, my arms were paralyzed. I'm thinking about the, you know, the things that everybody thinks about, you know, how am I going to be able to work? I have a special needs child. You know, how can we have the money to take care of her now? What's my future going to be? But it was frosty coming to me that really consumed me in that moment. My wife said I was I had this high pitched voice. I was talking like a child, and and even the janitor didn't escape my frosty story when they came into the room. I was telling everybody about frosty, how frosty came to me. So it, what's interesting is that uh, on the second day, coming out of coma, I see this beautiful little Indian woman approach my bed, and of course I didn't know at the time it was Dr. Patel, and she pulls up this chair, and sits down beside me. She knew my arms were paralyzed. So she, she put her hand on mine and she began to tell me about how many times she uh, almost lost me and how happy she was to see me alive. And then it got really personal in a hurry. She started to tell me that, you know, she was raised Hindu and she's a, a big believer in the afterlife and spirit and everything. But she had become very, very bitter and lost her faith and lost hope because her father and her were extremely close. Even even through medical school, she said we even knew each other's thoughts. Um, He would pick up the phone when I was thinking about him, vice versa. And she said all he was living for was to see my first child. And she was pregnant with her first child and six months before her child was born, out of nowhere, he had a brain aneurysm and died suddenly. And she said, you know, Rob, I, I've lost all my hope. I've become very bitter. But seeing you here, seeing you here alive, just gives me some hope that maybe, just maybe, there's something more out there. And what's curious about this is that it was kind of like the puzzle unscrambled in that, in that moment. Because while she was working on me, Another male spirit had entered the room, and I kept on hearing over and over again, keep working on him. You can save him. Don't give up. Keep working on him. Don't give up. And it struck me that it was Dr. Patel's father. Something inside her compelled her not to give up and to keep working on me and not to call it that night. And I could hear his voice because I was in that you know, realm where you're, you're so close to that veil, the veil's very thin. I can hear him. And I didn't want to tell her in that moment that that was her father with her. And he had always been with her and never left her. So it was kind of curious, Jeff, because it was after I had gone to Chicago and got my heart, I came back. It was a year later to see Dr. Patel. And I walked into the into the um, the hospital cafeteria. She met me there with a dozen roses and we sat down and I told her that 
story about her father was the one prompting her on that night, that spiritual prompting that kept her working on me for whatever reason. So those, that was the night that I died and the, the, the two incredible spiritual experiences that I had, one with Frosty that completely changed my religious beliefs and opened my heart and spirit to understanding that there's something more and we, we don't go to hell. Um, how can a loving God send someone to hell for such a complicated act? And, and then this whole thing with Dr. Patel's father just sealed the deal for me. And what's curious is, is that it, my, my second and most profound near-death experience in Chicago while I was awaiting a donor heart to arrive, you know, if, if it hadn't been for Frosty, and I thank him all the time for it, I wouldn't have been prepared for what was going to happen to me next. So it was a beautiful gift. And while I wrote my book, it took me three years to write my book, Frosty was cremated, and I kept an urn. His mother gave me uh, some of his ashes, and I kept a, a very clear glass urn on my desk, on my writing desk, right beside me, you know, in, in memory, and, and to thank Frosty for coming to me that night and, and opening up my mind. So that's how it all started. Rob, thank you for sharing your experience with us. It appears to me that your NDE happened before your coma. You know, Jeff, there's, there's really, it, it's hard to tell, uh, of course, when Frosty spoke to me. I mean, clearly, there's the, it's in my medical records. There's the nurse. There's my wife. They both saw me you know, spring up off the gurney and what my wife called a, a, a moment out of the movie, The Exorcist. You know, there I was unconscious and all of a sudden, bam, I, I spring forward and my eyes pop open and, and shout out Frosty's name. So clearly in my wife, you know, I, I talk about this in the book. She thought that, um, and, and we've seen it many, many times in our own families, that when someone is getting ready to transition to the other side, typically a spirit that they know comes to help them and to ease that passing and ease that transition. And my wife thought that's what was happening, that Frosty was coming to me to ease me into the spiritual realm. And she, she was screaming at the moment, no, 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 don't go to Frosty. Don't go to Frosty. Stay, stay here with me. So certainly um, Frosty was there in that moment, right before I flatlined. When did he speak to me? You know, Jeff, nobody knows. But I could tell you that I know for sure that Dr. Patel's father was speaking to her through me while she was trying to resuscitate me. Did you happen to see Frosty? And if so, did he look young and vital or did he look closer to the way he looked before he transitioned? Great question. I didn't see Frosty. Frosty spoke as clear as you and I are speaking to each other right now. He just spoke. And it was kind of like, you know, I remember there was like a kind of like a darkness and this voice was just booming out of the darkness. So I did not get a visual picture of Frosty in that moment. Uh, sounds like you were in the black void. Even when Dr. Patel's father was with you, were you still in this black void and then you heard his voice as well? Yes, exactly. Great way to put it. Because what's curious about it, of course, I don't, like I said, I don't remember screaming and passing out in my bed. I don't remember the ambulance ride. 
I don't remember anything. It was when I came out of coma and saw my wife and she told me what had happened, that I had screamed out his name, that I, because I knew that was something had gone on and I just couldn't put my finger on it in that moment. And then when she said to me what had happened, of course, all of this came rushing back into my memory. All right, well, let's move on to your second one. Sure, sure. So as you can imagine, um, my doctors came to me before I was released from the hospital and they said, look, Rob, your heart is completely destroyed. I know it's hard to grasp a 56 years old, healthy guy, but the only way you're going to survive is to get a heart transplant. So before they released me, Jeff, they put me in this defibrillator vest, um, which is run by a battery pack. And every time the heart gets weak, which mine was, I think my ejection fraction was 10%. I mean, it was, my heart was barely pumping blood through my body. So what this vest does is that every time the heart goes out of rhythm or it can't pump, this thing shocks you. So, so I had this battery pack on my right shoulder with this vest on. It looks kind of like a, uh, like a Kevlar bulletproof vest. And then they also uh, they put a port in my chest, and they put this medicine called milrinone, which is, my doctor said, think of it of like STP for the heart. So they put this port in. And I had a pump on my other shoulder that would squirt this medicine with this, you know, whirling sound on my heart, like every 30 seconds. And what that medicine does is it, it makes the heart pump, but it wears the heart out very fast. So the clock started ticking. So I went everywhere. I I went to Duke. I went to several other heart transplant clinics um, in the area and nobody would give me a heart. I didn't realize hearts were in such short supply. Of course, I had no idea about this whole organ transplant thing. So I was about to resign. I worked for a a steel, I'm a sales engineer for a steel company out of Chicago. I was, I called my boss and I said, look, I'm not coming back to work. I'm probably not going to live. So, because I need a heart transplant and I can't get one. So my boss said, you know what, let me talk to the owner of the company. So this is like one of those Hollywood moments where this benefactor comes out of nowhere and helps save your life. Um, I didn't realize that the owner of my company were privately held. Heart disease runs in his family. He's a philanthropist, and he is on the medical board at the University of Chicago Medicine. And he said, Rob, before you resign, just let me have a, let me have a talk with the hospital. And two days later, I got a call from uh, the heart transplant doctor, and he said, Rob, if you come to Chicago, we don't find anything else wrong with you, cancer or things like that. More than likely, we'll be able to transplant you within four months. So I said, okay. Two days later, my wife and I were on a plane. I get to Chicago and my doctor sees me there and he said, look, I have no idea how you're walking around, but we'll take it from here. So as fate would have it, Jeff, my, my heart transplant surgeon, who's world famous, Dr. Juvenandon, He's transplanted over uh, 1,500 people, including his own wife. He had been working on this uh, pump uh, called New Pulse. It's a new heart pump that you know keeps you alive while you're waiting for a donor heart. And he said, um, he said, look, you're not going to make it. The only way and the only chance you have to survive is if you try this pump. And I said, well, let me ask you, Doc, how many people have had this thing? And he said, well, that's just it. We've only... <laughs> tested this thing on cows. Uh, but he said, there's only one other guy that had it. He only had it for like 24 hours. 
and his donor heart showed up. But we need three weeks of, um, uh, of this thing in a human body in order for us to, to send it to the FDA for clinical trials. And it's kind of interesting because that's about how long I had it in me. So, of course, I agreed to get the new pulse in me. And by the way, it's being used now all over the country as a bridge for transplant. It saved many lives, some um, lives, some of the medical books. So it was kind of a, a wonderful thing to, to be able to give back. But they put this thing in. They, they, so they cut you here. They fish this little balloon pump down through your aorta. And out the left side of your body, there's a titanium disc that's behind your rib cage. These wires come out. It's actually run by an iPad, and it connects to this uh, this pump that's about the size of a lunchbox, and you carry it on your shoulder, and it pumps your heart for you as you wait for your donor heart to arrive. And you can, it allowed me to walk around the hospital and and you know try to keep some muscle tone, which was very difficult to do. But what happened, Jeff, is that even with the heart pump and the milrinone dripping on my heart and everything else, there were some other things they encountered, which I, I don't want to get into right now. Um, some other health issues that they encountered, which I wasn't even aware of. And they took me off the transplant list. So there I was. Um, I'm taken off the transplant list. I had atrophied down to about 132 pounds. I'm, I'm 174. My, my oldest brother said, uh, I looked like a, a skeleton of a human being, a wizened old man with the voice of a child. And that was about it. So one evening, I had just, uh, you know, for 20 years, my wife and I have been, we're sleep deprived. We have a special needs child. She has a seizure disorder. We're up all night, you know, changing her. I'm tired of fighting. I have this massive heart attack out of nowhere. And one night in Chicago, they had me on the eighth floor. And I had a view of Lake Michigan and this storm whipped up and found myself in a place. I was alone in my room. And to be honest with you, I just resigned my spirit. I couldn't take it anymore. And I just let go. And I, um, not proud of it, you know, but my heart went into tachycardia. The nurse rushes into the room. She says, why are you, why is your heart in tachycardia? Which means your heart's beating a hundred times a minute. It was just like, you know, crazy. She put some medicine there to calm me down. She left the room. And it's really interesting because all of this negative energy came rushing in. You know, every mis personal mistake that I've ever made in my life, all these dark thoughts, everything that you can imagine. It, it's almost like I became a magnet for negative energy, pulling all this in stuff, you know, this stuff in towards me. And in that moment, as this rain was smashing against the windows, and it looks like you're up in the middle of the sky on the eighth floor, lightning everywhere, I just screamed out, do with me what you will. And I just resigned myself. And what was incredible about that, Jeff, is that in that next moment, I found myself standing in the middle of nowhere. And it's, it's hard to articulate this because... There aren't words for it. And, and, the, and the best way that I can describe it is it's kind of like it's kind of like looking outside an airplane window on a clear day. You know, all you see is blue. You see everything, but you're really not looking at anything at all. And that was my first experience. I, I saw myself standing in the middle of nowhere 
And I'm looking down on my atrophied body in my green hospital gown, and this heart pump is pumping me, and I've got the IVs coming in trying to keep my heart. And at the same time, I could see this hologram is the best way to describe it, of myself, healthy and whole, standing in the middle of nowhere, still had the green hospital gown on, but I was standing in the middle of nowhere, and there I was. And I remember thinking in that moment, um, having been raised Catholic, I was disappointed. I did not see God. I did not see Jesus Christ. I did not see angels. I did not see dead loved ones. I didn't see anything. But what happened to me was, is that it was impressed upon me, almost like I heard Frosty's voice. I heard this. I am your real identity. I am omnipotent. This is the divine source for everything. This is the power behind all things. This is your real identity. And in that moment, it was almost as if I became connected to the vast wisdom of the universe, all of it, without words. And in that that space, in the book I call the ethereal, to me, there was no functionality of the the senses. In other words, I couldn't smell anything, hear anything, taste anything, none of that. But I had the ability to view light in ways that I could never even dream of. And I sensed these, you know, complex mathematical equations uh, floating around. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, the, the, the laws that govern the universe are just so elegant and simple. And I thought, oh, it has to be this way. It, you know, the creator uses a very simple thing to, to, to create all things with. It's just us that make it complicated because our minds don't have the capacity to understand how things are made. And I realized there that we are all made of the same stuff. And then what was so fascinating is that I saw and became part of this incredible web of twinkling lights. And that's what the book is named after, Quarks of Light. And I, I, you know, it's kind of like um, the best way to describe this is we remember from science class what a neuron looks like. So a neuron has a nucleus and then it has these dendrites and tentacles. They're all woven together. And I saw this web of lights that just seemed to hang on the ceiling of the universe and stretch into infinity. And it was so incredibly beautiful. And I understood in that moment that each spark of light or quark, and by the way, quarks are the smallest building blocks of matter, and they're made of light. These quarks, they combine, and they create infinite possibilities in the universe. They can create a person, a tree, or a dog, a solar system, a planet. It doesn't matter. All things are made of light, including us. And I knew in that space that this is what the divine creator uses. He uses light to heal, create, and transform us. And it's through these quarks. And this is what's being discovered now in like the Haldron Collider in Switzerland as they smash these particles together. They smash these particles together, and what do they get? They get more light particles. So it's all about the light. 
And as I, as I, you know, stood there and watched all this unfold, I realized in that moment that each quark of light represented a life. And I thought to myself, we're all connected. We're all one. It was a message of unity and oneness. And I realized that it's God, love, and light are one. And this universal language that is spoken throughout all creation is love. Love is the foundation for all of this. And, you know, I had a, um, when all of that, when all of that hit me, and I was able to put all this together, standing there in the middle of nowhere in this ethereal space, I realized that what we do here matters. It's almost like this web is a reflection of what's happening here on earth. What we do here affects our spiritual life, and the spiritual life reflects what's going on here in the temporal world. And standing there connected to everyone and everything, I thought, if I hurt myself, I hurt everything connected to me. But if I love, the light will spread. And it was there that I thought, you know, loneliness is just an illusion. How can I be lonely when I'm connected to everything? And, you know, we have to realize that both animate and inanimate objects They're all made of the same stuff, all of it. So, you know, whether we connect through nature or we see that divine in in other human beings, it's all the same. And I had a life, I had several life reviews there, which is also, I think to me that that was not the best part of it, but it was one of the most profound, in addition to this, experiences that I ever had. Because here's what happened. I was able to see nurses running. I'm looking there and I'm watching these nurses that were caring for me running in and out of patients' rooms. And what was curious is, is that I only saw the nurses that I had made negative assumptions about. You know, we're all human. We all like to think that uh, we've evolved past that place, that we don't judge people, but we do. And I remember looking down and seeing those nurses that for some one reason or another that I didn't particularly care for. And what happened was almost as if I was looking on multiple television screens, I began to see their lives in a regression of events. And, you know, it's kind of like the best way to explain this is we know how cartoons are made where the artist draws each movement of that character's, uh, you know, character's life. And then they, flip those pages at high speed, and and then it creates movement. So what happened was, is that I saw this person as they are today, and this film was going backwards in high speed. And every time there was a moment where that person was abused or a violent act took place or a bad accident, circumstances out of their control, poor personal choices, whatever it was, It was like that film stopped for a millisecond and gave me a picture and painted a portrait of what that person had become and why. And I thought to myself, how could I have ever judged these people so harshly? 
And then I was given my own life review, which was really tough to face. I saw my own mistakes, the things that I was most ashamed of that had happened in my life. And I came to this conclusion that I have to forgive myself here and now. And I forgave myself. And in that moment, I had never felt so free and unburdened. And I realized that, you know, this whole life process here in the temporal world is a lesson. And us as humans living here have to realize that, you know, we can only we can only act on the information that we have at the time. What I'm doing now at 62 certainly isn't something that I would do at 16. It's, you know, it's, we evolve. And, and, and hopefully we were evolving and moving towards something greater. And, you know, I realized there that we are spiritual beings first, having a human experience. And then what happened to me was the most transformative thing that ever took place in my life. Standing there, connected to this web, connected to everything, realizing that each quark of light represented a life. I, I saw in that place that, you know, some parts of the web were darker than others, and then some were brighter. And I realized that, that that's where, here in the temporal world, where we're not allowing that divine light to shine through us as much as we should. And I realized that that's part of the responsibility we have as human beings to let this love and light shine through us as bright as we can while we're here. And as we do that, you know, it illuminates the path for others. And then it makes those connections in the ethereal in that web brighter and brighter. But I was standing there in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, I see my daughter, Maria. And here in the temporal world, my daughter is very broken. Um, she can't walk, talk, or feed herself. She's constantly writhing her hands. She has Rett syndrome. All Rett syndrome girls do that. Can't free herself. She has to be fed, cared for around the clock. But there, she appeared to me perfect and whole, standing in the middle of nowhere. And she had this beautiful light coming through her. Not like a light that you and I have ever seen here in this temporal world, but that divine light, that divine love and light, it was emanating through her. And in the ethereal, at least for me, there was no language. You know, it was, um, thoughts were, were kind of like telepathic and, and it was synchronicity and telepathy at the same time. All I had to do was think about something. If I wanted the answer, to any question, all I had to do was think about it and it would just show up. And language is the same way. But when I saw Maria standing there in that unspoken language of the ethereal, I said to her, Maria, you know, I have never heard your voice. Your mother and I have taken you everywhere to try to heal you. I've never once heard you say, I love you, Daddy, nothing. And I asked her, what can we do to comfort you? You know, what is it that we can do? And she said three words that transformed my life. She said to me, just love me. And when she said, just love me, I cried out into that 
the vast wisdom that I never want to leave this place. And when I said, I never want to leave this place, I found myself back in my hospital bed. And that was the end of my experience. That was a powerful experience. Thank you for sharing that. One thing that I find interesting, and I've heard it, I wouldn't say over and over again, but quite a few times, and that is that when a person finally surrenders, he has an experience or he goes into an NDE or something will save his life. And it's kind of a different way, but in a way you still surrendered your life. Yes. You know what I think it is? I think it's, and, and we hear this a lot uh, from famous you know, uh, scientists, authors, writers, even athletes, actors. I think it's, I think it's surrendering the ego. But I think it is. The ego is one of the most dangerous things, unfortunately. There's a big difference between confidence and ego. And ego is a very destructive thing to the human spirit. And I think that if we can get out of our own way, sort of speak, and get that ego uh, contained or pushed out of the way, and it happens you know, very, very rarely in anyone's life, and there are very few that can do it, I believe that because it's so ingrained in us. But if we can do it, and I think that's where surrender comes in. And that's why it happens. And, you know, look, I had to die to figure this out. (laughs) I had to die for my ego to be crushed and to get out of the way. But I think you're exactly right, Jeff. I think that, that it's in that surrender where we find our true authentic selves and we're we're stripped down to nothing, and it's just you and the maker, and there it is. You know, there's that big mirror that's held up, and it's there where we find our true, authentic selves, and we can operate in, in in a much different way for the rest of our lives. That's what's happened to me once we surrender that and and have that experience. Do you think that having the ego is a result of being here in this realm? Because once you go back, you're connected and possibly you're one with everything. So the separateness creates the ego and you're kind of releasing it and finally joining back with the collective. Spot on. I think that's exactly what happens. Because in that, in that place where we're all connected and we're all one, and we all come from that place, by the way, of divine energy, that divine love and light. And, and when we're back with that collective, as you say, which is a great way of putting it, I think that that's where that ego is finally destroyed. I feel like you've connected with your daughter's higher self in that realm. Yes. And since then, or during your experience, Do you get a feeling or a thought that perhaps she's here suffering as some kind of learning experience? Well, you know, I have to tell you that that is something that is very, very difficult to deal with on a daily basis. To watch your own child suffer, be tormented, you, you, you know, you, and and suffering is something that, you know, even the greatest minds and the saints still haven't come with a good answer for it. But I can tell you this, I I believe that now that having experienced this, 
that we do, we're asked, and we do choose our mission. And there have been many times in the temporal world, many times, that when, when Maria and I and my wife go through these really dark moments, there's this kind of smirk that shows up on Maria's face. And I saw that when she came to me perfect and whole in the ethereal. And it was a clue to me that regardless of what's going on in the temporal world, in her suffering, the best part of her is not suffering. And it just validated again my whole experience that we're spiritual beings first, having a human experience. We're in these fragile clay vessels, and we have this, we're having this human experience to learn. So when we go back to this collective, connect back to this web of love and light, that we could share these lessons. But I could tell you that for me, seeing that and knowing that now, is one of the only things that gets me through the day sometimes now with Maria, because this has been going on. She just turned 26. This has been going on her whole life. And it is one of those things now that gives me hope and solace and, uh, and Maria too. So we now have a connection where I can join with her in that suffering, ease it. And it, it just gets me through the day with her. Now you're still here with us and we didn't get into it, but I presume that you got the heart transplant. I did. So right after that experience, it was probably a few days later that my donor heart arrived. And that is just a whole nother, <laughs> that's a whole nother discussion, but an amazing part of my journey. And it's actually why I'm here today with you to share my story. Because I have someone living inside me who expresses through me and wants to get this story out there because it's, it's so necessary. And I'll share, I'll share a little bit uh, of this with you, Jeff, not to spoil for those who care to read the book, but um, this person who lives inside me, and this is why I believe, and I coined the phrase, in my book, I talk about the coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous. And I believe that now. I don't believe in coincidences. But um, I have a young woman inside me who is my daughter's age. At the time, Maria was 20 when I got my heart. And uh, this young woman uh, was 20 years old. She had also passed by suicide, like my brother-in-law, Frosty. And I didn't meet the father until uh, it took two years for me to connect with the father. But when I did, it was an extraordinary experience because I had asked him to bring, you know, uh, whatever he wanted to bring to the meeting. And we met at a Denny's restaurant and he brought her computer and a bunch of uh, files and artwork and things like that, that he wanted to show me. And what's curious about this is that, young woman's name is Molly, and Molly had uh, an affection for, and she was drawn towards and wanted to work with special needs children. And every time he said that she would see a special needs child, she would go out of her way to go over to that person and spend time with that person. In her school, there were some special needs children that were getting bullied. She would always stand up for them. And so it was something that she always wanted to do. 
find that curious that here she is giving me life so I can continue to care for my daughter. Not only that, she was a natural born artist. And her favorite thing to do was to draw pencil sketches. So when, when her dad opened up her portfolio, I almost fell out of my chair because uh, I'm, my, my parents were Italian immigrants and first generation. My mother also never took a drawing lesson, much like Molly. And when, I, when he opened up her portfolio, some of the pictures that she drew and the way she used uh, you know, tone and strokes and things like that in all of her pictures were exactly like my mother's. It, 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 it was stunning. And in addition, her favorite flower was a daisy. And she actually had a daisy uh, with a stem and three flowers tattooed on her shoulder before she passed. And my father's favorite flower, I never knew my father, he was killed in a, in a steel mill accident when I was five. But every picture that I see of my father, particularly the ones that we passed down through our family as, as tradition, is him standing um, in front of our garden back home in Pennsylvania, surrounded by daisies. He used to plant daisies all around our garden back home, and daisies were his favorite flower. So it was just, it was just an incredible thing um, to experience that. And I'm very close with Molly's best friend, who actually comes to visit uh, often, cuts Maria's hair. Mm. She's a cosmetologist. So it's been an extraordinary uh, experience. And, you know, to it's hard to describe the essence of another human being and what it's like for that person to live inside you. But I get promptings from her all the time. It's actually her that encourages me to get out there and speak to a lot of groups, speak to parents, groups who've lost their children to suicide. So this is something that she keeps driving me forward uh, to do these things. Was Molly born after your mother had passed? Uh, no, no, Molly. Um, so my mother, I can't remember exactly the the the, uh, the date that my mother passed, but Molly, Molly had already been born. All right. I was starting to think maybe, you know, maybe your mother <laughs> had reincarnated into Molly. Never know. Um, um it, it's just too uncanny, all of those so-called coincidences with Molly. So you said that you have these promptings sometime that you feel from from her. Do you, yeah. do you get any other kind of spiritual experiences that you feel like it's coming from her? Well, I don't know if they're spiritual experiences, but they're, um, the essence of her is with me all the time and lives inside me. And all this is scientifically proven, by the way. I'll give you an example. So the heart, it's unlike any other organ in the body. It's not just an organ. The heart, as we know, is the first thing that develops in the mother's womb because it's the heart that has to develop to pump the blood and oxygen to the brain and to other parts of the body. So as that's taking place, the heart develops its own cluster of cells, which they've identified as the brain of the heart. And that's the only thing that makes heart transplantation work because the heart has its own brain and the heart communicates with the brain in four different ways. It communicates neurologically, it communicates biochemically, 
it communicates through pulse waves and it communicates through the most interesting electromagnetic waves. So the heart, if you think of the heart, it's almost like a radio transmitter. And there's been a tremendous amount of research done on the heart, particularly by the Heart Math Institute. And they've done all of these really cool experiments showing that the heart, it's these, these electromagnetic waves are like 60 times stronger than the electromagnetic waves emitted by the brain. So if you could, uh, if you could see this, it's kind of like an aura. The heart, these magnetic, electromagnetic waves can be felt and detected with special meters now up to 100 feet in radius around a human being. So I believe that a lot of our intuition, things like that, comes from the heart. And it's also the way we communicate with other human beings without using language. You know, we've always, we've always had this experience of walking into a room and you say, oh, I, you know, I, that person's energy, I don't know something about that person. So they've done these cool experiments where they put uh, couples, for example, in a room, hooked them up to an EKG, and within like 30 seconds, their hearts are in perfect rhythm together, beating in perfect rhythm. And they've also seen that certain things like music, for example, uh, for for example, my, so my daughter was perfectly normal until she was uh, about two years old, but she she's always had this love for music, and we used to play music to her all the time. And they have found out that music is stored in certain areas that even Alzheimer patients they never lose the this this um, the ability to understand music, which I find is very very fascinating. So. This brain in the heart, it stores some of our preferences, um, food, music, uh, our personality, moods. There's, there's times when I have no idea where these moods of mine are coming from, because I know myself pretty well, but they're from Molly. There was, a, I'll tell you, I, I gotta, I'll make you laugh because um, so I've always been a health nut. That's why this this whole accident with this you know, massive heart attack was so tragic for me. But I, I find myself going through these different, like, cravings. So uh, two years after transplant, before I even met her dad, and I travel a lot in my job, I would, I, I just couldn't live without M&Ms. So, so before I got on a plane, I'd have, I'd got to have a bag of M&Ms. Yeah. And of course, you know, uh, Molly's, Molly loved M&Ms. And uh, my wife even now says uh, I have a tendency to drive in the middle of the road, and she says, "Molly, stop it!" You know, brings me back over to the other side. So there's all of these things. My 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 taste in music, all of these things have changed because this other person you know, is expressing. It was fascinating. At one time, you said that you were taken off the list for transplants because you had some other health condition, and we don't have to go into the condition, but. Did you have some type of divine healing during your experience that cured that to be able to get back on the list? Great question. Well, let's, let's put it this way. Um, so, so my, I had an extraordinary team at, at the university of Chicago medicine, and they really connected with my story with Maria, I should say, and they did everything they could to help me. So I had written a letter after I got taken off. I'll never forget the day 
uh, my doctor, Dr. Uriel. You'll find this interesting, Jeff. So, so, so Uriel is, is one of, uh, one of the most powerful angels. And I'll never forget, there was a time when we had taken, uh, we had taken Maria to this doctor in, in Georgia to get metal detoxed. And there was a little boy in there who was gifted, who saw angels. And so they're, they're in this, they're in this, uh, like kind of like a sauna getting, getting detoxed and, and by the way, my wife and I didn't realize this until after I got my heart. But we're in the sauna, and the, the father, actually, of this little boy is, is telling us about his gift. And, of course, then we didn't believe any of this stuff. And my wife's in the sauna, and, um, and my wife says to this little boy, oh, well, I think Maria has an angel, too. And, we, and, and I think it's probably, you know, the archangel Michael. And this little boy turns to my wife and says, oh, don't be so silly. Her, her angel is Uriel. And here it turns out that my doctor, he wasn't the transplant surgeon, but he was the head of the heart failure department who is now, now he's in New York, but his name is Dr. Uriel. And we didn't put the two together. So, but it was Dr. Uriel that after he came into my room that day, took me off the transplant list before I had my NDE. Uh, I had I had written him a very impassioned text about, you know, just just let me die naturally now then, because I just can't I can't I can't do this anymore and things like that and so he got approval to transplant me. It's the second time I made medical history with the condition that I was in, and he said, "Well, when you get your heart, we'll take care of that other issue," but you've paved the way now for other people with similar conditions to get transplanted. So after I got transplanted, you know, I had to live in Chicago a year. I had to live near the hospital by myself in an apartment. Um, and I'll, by the way, so a lot of the things that, that, that I experienced in the ethereal had begun to just download and come through me while I was by myself in Chicago. And I bought these big giant, you know, sticky notes, and I would write all these thoughts that were flowing out of me, and I would just stick them on my wall. And then when my wife would come visit, she was like, oh, my God, what is this? Have you lost your mind? What are these thoughts? You know, um, But it, it was interesting because I – so I went in for uh, testing. The first three months, you're almost in the hospital every day getting testing to make sure the heart is not rejecting. And they, they go through your neck, actually, and they put this tube down into the heart, and they snip it off. And, and they get some biopsies and they send it off for testing. But about six months in, I had, um, I had some testing done on the other issue. And they couldn't find anything. And then I went back and I had a year later, I had more, much more aggressive testing. They took 15 biopsies. They still couldn't find anything. I believe that when I had that near-death experience, that I was healed. But can't prove it. Do you think that it is your purpose to be here and experience your daughter's condition as well as take care of her? And that's why you were able to survive and keep going? Oh, no question. No question. I really, I really believe that 
that was the reason, part of the reason uh, that, that I was saved that night, that I, I had to die. I had to have this experience so I could share it. And I had to stick around to help Maria on this journey. And I think that as she becomes more aware, I think there's going to be a lot of big surprises down the road in Maria's life that I'm very excited to see. And we continue to grow closer spiritually all the time. But I do think that it's not the end of the story, that there's a lot more to be discovered with her, my connection with her, and and what, what will come of it, I don't know. But I know there's something there. And I can't wait to figure out what it is, because uh, who knows? Might write another book about it. But it's it's hanging out there. And, and I'm, I'm looking forward to discovering it. Some of the people who come and watch my videos are people that have lost somebody and they're wondering, curious if they're okay on the other side, as well as grieving and maybe having their own existential crisis. What kind of advice can you give them? I can tell you that we have to understand we're spiritual beings having a human experience. and. To see my brother-in-law, not see, hear my brother-in-law tell me he's in a good place. And to see my daughter perfect and whole and have that conversation with her. To have her just to say, just love me. You know, I can assure you that their loved ones in spirit are perfect and whole, awaiting to see them. I think that if you, you know, I'm, I'm big on transcendental meditation. And I really believe that we can connect with those loved ones on the other side. We have to open our hearts up to that. We have to open our spirit up to that. But I really believe that they are, they are fine and that it's all good. And the way we can open ourselves more to that experience is through love. You know, I had, um, I had a really neat thing happen to me when I was living in Chicago. I became very depressed. You know, I was away from my wife and Maria, all of that, but you know, I didn't know where I belonged. I felt like I, I took this journey in, you know, the, the veil was, was uh, lifted for a while. I took that journey, came back to earth with stardust on me, and I just didn't want to be here. And I had tremendous guilt about that. I watched a lot of people on my floor die young kids die. I felt guilty about getting a heart. I felt guilty about all the support that my employer gave me about not wanting to, to go home and, and, and help my wife and daughter. I felt guilty about all those things, but I could not. I was grappling with the temporal world and the beauty and the love and the light and the connectedness to everything in the ethereal, in the spiritual realm. And I'll never forget it. Uh, my boss, who's Chinese and, and became uh, a Christian about seven years ago, he called me up one Sunday. He knew I was in trouble. And he said, hey, I want to come over you know, to your apartment and I want to bring my pastor, this guy's pastor man, uh, who doesn't speak English very well. And I said, Paul, I, look, I, don't bring this guy over here. Probably won't be able to understand him anyway. I really don't want any company. So don't, don't come. He said, I I don't care. I'm coming anyway. So I said, okay. 
So this guy shows up. And here I am sitting on the front porch. A pastor man comes and he's smiling from ear to ear, you know, and he sits down on the porch and, and my boss goes into the apartment, leaves us alone. And I felt like I can trust this guy. So I broke down. I started, you know, to cry and tell him how I felt. And, and I said, look, you know, here's my problem. I don't know where I belong. And I want to be back there. And he said to me, you know, the, the, the solution to your problem is very simple. And I said, oh, really? Well, <laughs> well, tell me, what is it? And he said, you've grown too fat in the spirit from your journey. And he said, so to get thin again, you have to learn to see the divine in everything. He said, because when you see the divine in everything, the gifts of the spirit will begin to express love, kindness, forgiveness, all of those things. Then he said something that really snapped me out of my depression and changed everything for me. He said, you don't have to leave the earth to experience the divine. And when he said that, he left uh, and I went for a long walk. And I walked into the park. There was a park near my apartment. And much like I did when I was a kid, um, I used to walk through the woods and pull leaves off of trees and put them in my hands and ask them for their energy. And I began to do that and open the leaf up. And I looked at that leaf. I, I opened it up and, and I, I said, wow, the structure of this kind of looks like the web and the ethereal. And I ran back to my apartment, well, hobbled back to my apartment. And I Googled the anatomy of a leaf, and it looked like the web that I saw, the ethereal, and then, I, and then the solar system. And I began to Google other things, and all of it started to come together. And that was one of the things that really was a huge paradigm shift in, in, in how I live my life now. And the advice that I would like to give, particularly people who have lost a loved one, to know that we're all connected that the divine is in each and every one of us, this spark of light, this cork that lives inside of us, and that we're perfect in, in spirit. And, and we'll see those loved ones again one day. You know, I saw my daughter who suffers every day perfect. So that's the hope. That's the message that I wanted to express. On the other side, you experienced energy and I believe that you would say that the energy ultimately is love. Yes. Have you ever considered that the electricity that runs through our electrical wires is basically energy and that is love? Even though for some reason we can't perceive it, that electricity is love. Do you think that's possible? I think that everything, we could, we could learn to see the divine in everything. And of course, electricity is all of it has been created you know, by the creator. You know, we, as, as far as I'm concerned, we really don't create anything. You know, the old expression, there's nothing new under the sun. We discover things, but it's already all been created. It's all a gift. And electricity is a gift. Um, so do I think that that could be possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Rob, I'm going to switch gears on you because we're running we're running toward the end of time here for the podcast. Your book okay. is called Quarks of Light. 
Do we get that in your website or on Amazon or both? On uh, both. You can uh, certainly, it's available on Amazon and uh, all booksellers have it actually. Uh, and you can also go to my website, although you can't order through my website, but uh, it, you know you can go to my website. It's robagentile.com and uh, see you know some other things that uh, I've done on podcasts and interviews and, and things like that, a little bit more about my story. There's some pictures of Maria on there. Um, but yes. After watching this podcast, people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions. Are you open to that? And if so, how can people reach you? Oh, certainly. I am open to that. That's one of the most gratifying things that I've uh, experienced through these podcasts. So they can reach out to me. There is a, um, uh, a contact page. They can reach out to me through my website, robagentile.com. You'll, you'll see that contact page and you can reach out to me there. Do you have anything else going on that you want us to know about? Well, you know, Jeff, I'm not sure which direction to go in. I'm being pulled in a lot of directions. There's been some interest for me to uh, create a screenplay. You know, when I was on Coast to Coast with George Norrie, he said, Rob, this is a Netflix series or a film. You need to pursue that. Um, there's been other people that have come to me and said, listen, you, you, maybe you should think about creating some courses. So it's, it's just, I've got to pray about that. I've got to dis discern, you know, I only have so much time in a day between my full-time job, taking care of Maria. Uh, I've got to try to figure out what to do next, but absolutely there's more coming because I've gotten just so much great feedback every time that I put myself out there. I know that folks want to hear more. I want to give more. Molly wants me to give more. So we'll see what the future holds. Well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Certainly. When we all understand that our identity comes from the creator, it's a tremendously freeing, beautiful thing. And I know that sometimes it's difficult living in this temporal world. You know, we all, the vicissitudes of life sometimes can really bring us down. But if we can just keep in mind that perspective, that we're spiritual beings first, having a human experience, and that our real identity comes from this divine source of love and light. Wow, that's hard to beat, you know? So that's what I'd like to leave you with. Rob, thank you for that message, and thank you again for being my guest. I wish you massive success in whatever you're doing. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara Podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the Join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.